This is Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 17. It says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. T.S. Eliot is an American poet, best known probably for his massive poem, The Wasteland. In 1919, he wrote an essay entitled Tradition and the Individual Talent. And in this essay, he was basically ripping on the romantics for this idea that poets had originality and novelty and uniqueness. T.S. Eliot says, poets must be set among the dead. And when they're set among the dead, we shall often find that not only the best, but the most individual parts of that poet's work may be those in which the dead poets assert their immortality most vigorously. Poets need to be set in this context of discussion of what other poets have said. It's almost echoing the words of Kohelet, the teacher from Ecclesiastes, that says there's nothing new under the sun. There's no poem that hasn't been informed by other poems. There's no song that hasn't been informed by other songs. There's no preaching that hasn't been informed by other preaching. This is true of the poet in Isaiah 40 through 55, um, as we'll see in a few minutes, we've been looking at that set of texts in particular, those 16 chapters in Isaiah, trying to see what he has to say. And the poet often recalls the imagery of Isaiah 1 through 39. I'm arguing that that was set 150 years prior to when this set of texts was written. And as the poet was writing and explaining what was going on in the midst of exile, he was going back to the language that was already used by Isaiah ben Amos in the 8th century. And as Jeffrey, the dude Lebowski, would say, the poet also speaks in the parlance of his time. He's using images that make sense. He's using metaphors that make sense. He's using these turns of phrases that would awaken the minds of the audience to this piece of literature or that piece of literature or this message or that message. He's not writing in a vacuum, kind of affirming what T.S. Eliot is saying. If we can set... Uh, the poet in Isaiah 40 through 55, amongst the dead, will see things as, they, as they're meant to be seen. I also just want to throw this in there because I do think that this is true of my sermons as well. Sometimes I'll get up here and I'll talk, and I don't cite things necessarily, but everything that I talk about is informed by a whole list of things. Scholars, writers, pastors, friends, conversations that I have with you guys, my family, my background, my my upbringing, my schooling, all these things impact the things that I talk about. This sermon in particular is shaped from a message that I heard probably s seven years ago now. 
turned my life upside down, I guess, because it opened up the Bible in a really new way. I'm setting the bar high for myself tonight. This is one of those messages that could go either really, really well or really, really terrible. And I'll find out in about 15 minutes where we're going to be. And when you start seeing the sweat beads from my face, that means it's not going as intended. But hopefully God will show up and we'll, we'll learn some stuff here. But I just want this to be, to be at least known that this sermon is based on another sermon called The Other Cup by a guy named Raymond Dillard. I'll send a link out to it because... Um, it's, it's written out, and I'll send a link out to it on the Facebook page if you guys want to read that. But a lot of his thoughts are, are echoed here as well. The background to what we're talking about tonight, again, and I'm sure you guys are sick of seeing this, but review is good. If there's one thing I learned from my education classes, it's review, 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 because nobody's listening to you. That's usually what happens. So the way the book is broken down, it's 1 through 39 is its own set of texts. That, again, is Isaiah ben Amos, the 8th century prophet who was writing within Jerusalem. He's writing at the peak of Assyrian power. Understand that when the Bible is taking place, especially with the prophets, there's things that are going on in the political structures around that impact what the Israelite and prophets from Judah are talking about. So Isaiah 1 through 39 is set in that 8th century context. Isaiah 40 through 55 is almost like things have happened. The message that has been brought about destruction and pain, they have taken place. And the first words of Isaiah 40 are comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's presupposing exile. It's presupposing this people that has been removed from the land, that has been taken from the promises of God and, and taken into captivity by Babylon, another world power who actually defeated Assyria sometime in the past. So here, in Isaiah 40 through 55, we see things like exile. And for these folks, it was huge because their whole relationship with God kind of was set within the context of the land and the promises that God had made back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. You're going to be great. Your kids are going to be great. Nations are going to come from you. The whole world is going to be blessed because of you, and I'm going to give you land. But when they're outside the land, they're calling all that into question. The message is one of comfort, rescue, and ultimately a return to the land, but it's met with doubt amongst the people. And as we've talked about over the last 20 weeks, I'm sorry, it's that kind of hospital room mentality. When we face life's ultimate difficulties and tragedies, we begin to wonder if God cares about us, if he's concerned for who we are, if he's present in our lives, or if the promises that you hear people like me talking about are actually just null and void. So we see this bit, bit of doubt in Isaiah 40 through 55, which I think has lent itself beautifully for our context because I believe that we're a people that struggles with life. And I believe that we're becoming a people that can be honest about that with one another. Saying things like, I don't know how this situation matches up with what you talk about or what the Bible says or what God is supposed to be doing, but I'm going to trust that something is going to happen there. It's almost like we've taken on the mantle of the psalmist who are writing these laments in the midst of pain, saying, my enemies are all around me. How long is this going to continue? Yet I will trust you. And it's that turn to trust at the end that hopefully can characterize us as a people even in the midst of, of doubt and difficulty. That's kind of where we are. And a few weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 51, where God comes back trying to reaffirm who he is. And he says, listen to me, look to Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, the story of reversal, the story of life from barrenness, the story of divine interaction, the story where a woman who shouldn't have, been, who shouldn't have had kids is having kids. A story of a promise that took 40-some years to come to fruition, yet did come to fruition. He's saying, look back to that story and be encouraged by it. 
Look back to that story and understand I'm powerful and I can do what it is that I want to do. Listen to me. Rescue is coming. Hear me. You have nothing to fear. Babylon all around you is powerful and strong and perhaps they're getting a little bit ticked about what's going on in the world and they're taking it out on you. But listen to me. Stay with me. I'm for you. The relationship that you think is fractured is not fractured. And last week we saw this being called into question as well where Israel shows up and says, God, if that's the case, then wake up and do something. All the things that you said you were going to do, why don't you go ahead and do that? In fact, you remember, you remember how you cut Rahab to pieces. Again, not the prostitute. This is the, the mythical dragon sea monster that Isaiah is looking at here, which is really neat. How you dried up the deep, that chaos-filled sort of problem that all of the ancient people were hoping that their gods would subdue how you dried up the deep and also made a road in the sea so that we could pass through from Egypt back into Israel. Remember those things, God. The power that you demonstrated there, demonstrate it again because we're dying here. The way the rest of this chapter unfolds, it's as if God is answering those issues and saying, okay, now's the time where I'm actually going to bring about the things that I'm telling you I'm going to do, but this is only after a quick rehearsal of the past, and this is every pastor's nightmare here, a text like this that begins, awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. We don't like talking about wrath because it's not nice. It's yeah, gives us the heebie-jeebies because we like to be in a context where we talk about love and mercy and grace, and we don't like talking about judgment and wrath especially when we associate it with God, especially when he's pouring it out on his own people. But he's talking to Jerusalem in particular and saying, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the exiles have drunk from this cup. They've experienced all the pain that comes along with the wrath of God in the sense that they've been removed from the land. They've been, in their minds, removed from relationship. They've begun saying things like, you don't care about us anymore, our rights, our mishpat, our concern, you're just completely in a different place. You're not even present. You've abandoned us, it says in one text. And I think it's perhaps in this image, when we think about the cup of the wrath of God, that the poet of Isaiah 40 through 55 needs to be set amongst the dead. It needs to be set within this broader context of what does it mean to drink from this cup. So I'm going to look at a couple verses and try to like tie it all together in a nice tapestry, almost like a scarf that Rachel Smith would knit for someone for Christmas. It's an infinity scarf, this message. It just weaves in and out, all becoming one beautiful circle. Maybe, hopefully. Okay, Psalm 75 says, No one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. God does what he does, and he does it in his time. Verse 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dredges. This is not a great image, but I, I want to point out some things and then we'll look at what a scholar has to say. This idea of foaming wine. I have the privilege of working at a brewery, or I used to. Sorry, Mom. Working at a brewery, I learned a little bit about how beer is made and kind of the science behind how beer and how wine is, are, are made is yeast eats up the residual sugars. And when that yeast eats up the sugars, there's a couple of byproducts that happen with that. One is heat because of all the molecular activity, all that yeast-eating sugars. That's just great. The other 
important one for this particular text is CO2. Because of that yeast eating up the sugars, it's releasing carbon dioxide. Some people would argue that this foaming wine is indicating that fermentation is happening. This is not the new wine that's like grape juice. This is wine that's got a little bit of a kick to it. Not only is it a wine with a kick to it, it's also wine that's mixed with spices. This is what John Goldinger has to say about this whole text in particular. It says, it may be that Yahweh simply makes people drink too much, or perhaps the drink is a trial. Numbers 5 is a really stinking weird text where Lady is accused of adultery. Lady goes before judge slash priest. They make this weird concoction, and she drinks it. If it doesn't, I guess, kill her, then she's good. And if it does kill her, then we know she really cheated on her man. Different culture, okay? Ancient, some weird stuff happening there. But he's saying, but the background to this text might be different. It might be the work of an assassin at a Middle Eastern banquet posing as a cupbearer. Basically, you have things that are given to people, and within those things, you might be able to lace them with poison to kill whoever you wanted to kill. Especially in this, in this context, it wasn't like, uh, let's hold an election and we'll throw some mud at each other for a year and a half and then we'll vote and see who's going to become king. It was, no, you kill the person that you want their job. So the kings would have people like cupbearers who would try to help the king avoid that difficult death there. But he's saying, first, like a venter or a bar steward. This is really going to mess with you, Mom. I'm sorry, but this is God being, being linked to being a bar steward here. It says Yahweh mixes the drink. Their basis is wine that has fermented and thus has gained alcoholic potency. It is not the new wine that has not yet had a chance to do that. We talked about that. Further, it is a full mixture. It's wine combined with herbs and spices in the manner of a drink such as sangria. You don't see that a lot in commentaries, guys. You just don't. You don't see comparisons to sangria. This stuff is fun. It's what I've been trying to tell you. Except that this might be no ordinary blend. Dun, dun, dun. Boom, 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 boom. This sangria will kill you. Okay? So here, what they're talking about in the Psalms is this drink that's foaming. Whether that's alcohol doing its stuff, fermentation happening, whether that's CO2 being released, I think it's worth pursuing, but I'm not sure. It does seem as though there's something happening here, and it's not what you want to be drinking along with your dinner. The means of judgment for the faithless is drinking this cup of foaming, spicy goodness. Jeremiah 25 also talks about this cup. And Jeremiah 25 is set within the context of Assyria. Again, Assyria has been in power for a long time. And they have been conquering people all over the place. Their empire has been growing. And you know that when your empire grows, your forces are kind of spread out a little bit, so you don't have that one unified thing, so there's kind of cracks in the armor. Two other rival powers, Babylon and Egypt, were vying for power at this time, trying to overthrow certain things. In 612, Nineveh falls, which is the capital of Assyria, and in 605, we have what's called the Battle of Carchemish, where it's a no-holds-barred challenge for who's going to reign supreme in the world, or at least in this slice of the world. Babylon takes over, and for Judah and Jerusalem, that was like a death sentence. And this is actually what, what Jeremiah is talking about, saying Babylon is going to kill you. 
So get ready for that. You have not listened to what God asked you to do. You have not changed who you are in any way, shape, or form. You have not repented for the things I've been begging you to repent of for the last 40 to 50 years. You're not doing it. Therefore, God is going to judge you. And this is how he talks about it. The God of Israel says to Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. This is who he's sending it to, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and its officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. Jerusalem, you're going to get it. Whether or not you like it, you're drinking this drink. And all of the things that come along with that are happening. The list continues. It's a lot of the nations, which is different than our text in Isaiah, but we see all of these people are drinking from this cup, and this is what happens. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Drink and get drunk and vomit and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, you tell them, This is what the Lord Almighty says, You must drink it. Catch that. You must drink it. There's no out clause for it. See, I'm, I'm, be, I'm beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name, and will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. This is so far away from that love and mercy and grace and make you feel all warm and cuddly. This picture of God is one where he's saying, I can't let the guilty go unpunished. You're drinking what I give you to drink. You must do it. This is setting up the context for us here where Jerusalem becomes the people that are among the faithless. And Jeremiah warns of the day when they will drink this cup of wrath. And in fact, they do. In 586, Babylon shows up and they destroy the place, the temple, the people. They just kick them out, exile them. They put them into captivity. The judgment that has been talked about for so long happens. And that's the setting in which we find Isaiah talking in Isaiah 51. He says, awake, awake, you who have already drunk this cup. You whose story is one where you had to suck it down and stagger and vomit and not rise again. You that have taken on this cup, that have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. The results of this are, are a few, namely three. As the text continues, we see images of what this does Jerusalem becomes the mourning mother. She has no comfort. She has no consolation. She has no kids because they have all died. It says in verse 18, of all the sons she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. And don't you know what antelope caught in a net is like? I mean, we're really resonating with that. See that all the time. There's nets everywhere and those dang antelopes. They're just not in a good place. This was big because for a mom back in the ancient Near East, her kids were her lifeline. If you have no kids, you're dead. You're a dead lady walking. There's no chance. So this is like a double calamity. And I don't know if this is what he's talking about necessarily, but it's like not only do you have to go through the mourning process of losing all your kids, but your kids won't be there to help you anymore. You're completely and utterly helpless. And that's kind of how 
the people of Israel at this time were. They were completely and utterly helpless. Jerusalem is not only a mourning mother, though. She's also an abandoned wife. The term that's used there for anybody that cares is only used in Psalm 45, which is this kind of sonnet about a king marrying this lady. It's like a kingly marriage. And the way that the the bridegroom is referred to as the same way that God's being referred to here, kind of demonstrating that Jerusalem is an abandoned wife, or at least feels that way. And then third, she's an abused slave. In verse 23, it says this, and we'll come back to this again. But in verse 23, it says, I will put the cup into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk over you and you make your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. They have become a slave that's been abused. Some people would say that she has been tormented. That's in the text. Some people even use this language to see, to symbolize some sort of a rape that's take place. Like what's happened to Jerusalem and the people that inhabit the city has been atrocious, has been deadly, has been completely and utterly traumatic, has been something that characterizes them as a people as they sit in exile saying, where are you? We're abandoned, we're abused, we got no hope, we've got no lifeline. But this is not the final word in this text. And the poet is moving from exile, the before, to the after in this next few verses that we'll read and then we'll see how this all makes sense. In verse 22 it says, This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. It's done. You drank it. In Isaiah 40 verse 2 it says, You have paid your debt in full, basically. The sins that have caused this have been completely taken care of. Verse 23, it says, I'm going to take this cup and I'm going to put it into the hands of your tormentors. The message of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah here seems to be that everybody is going to drink something. This metaphorical cup of God's wrath, nobody's escaping it. It seems as though there's an implicit message that at some point or another, we're all taking this, drinking it to the dregs, and suffering the consequences. But both of these poets, both Jeremiah and then Isaiah and Isaiah 51, in different ways, they're hinting at something new, something different, maybe an option C, a third way, something that does not come to fruition for some time. Fast forward 580-ish years. You see where I'm going, don't you? Jesus sitting around the table with a bunch of his friends. We talk about it every week. And in Matthew 25, the way that it's described is, is interesting. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As Jesus sits around the table with his friends, he gives them a different cup. And at this point, the author of Matthew and also the people have to be thinking, this is kind of like that thing back there. Setting this context amongst the dead, you see in Psalm 75 where things are happening and people are drinking this foaming goodness, but not in a, in a good way. In Jeremiah 25, where everyone that's given this cup has to drink it to the dregs, and they vomit, and they stagger, and they fail, and they're judged. And then in Isaiah 51, where the poet is still saying all these things and saying, 
you've been there, you've done that, it's not good, but you had to do it. And now Jesus saying, this is a different cup. This is a cup that symbolizes my blood that's shed for you. Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do so remembering me and what's about to happen. They didn't know what was about to happen at this point. Fast forward, right after this text, we see Jesus in the garden. Jesus, when he's in the garden, he's praying these prayers. The people that are with him keep falling asleep, but every time he removes himself into the solitude and the silence of that night, the prayers that he prays center around the cup. As my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death to his disciples, stay here and keep watch with me. But he goes a little farther. He falls to his face to the ground and he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. See, even Jesus needs to be set amongst the dead where he is using the same images that people all throughout the Old Testament have used, this cup that you can't escape, this cup that's foaming with spicy goodness, this cup that symbolizes judgment that has to be drunk. He's saying, if there's any way, take it from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We see that interchange where he goes back to his friends and they're sleeping. He's like, how can you be asleep? This is the night. This is the night that I need you. And we see him remove himself again in verse 42. He goes away a second time and he prays, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You can see he's almost coming to terms here where it must be done. No one escapes it. It must be drunk. This cup of judgment, this cup that's deserved for the, the faithless, this cup that should be ours, He's going to drink it on our behalf. The image continues, and John picks it up, and the way that he summarizes this event, I think, is interesting. In John chapter 20, this is Jesus on the cross. It says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar. Catch that? In the ancient Near East, there's, there's some good comparisons here between wine vinegar and the foaming, sudsy, spicy wine. This is kind of like wine gone bad a little bit, but Jesus says, I'm thirsty. So they give him a jar of wine vinegar. They soak a sponge with it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. They lift it to Jesus' lips when he had received the drink, when he had drank the cup, when he had taken the foaming stuff, when he had taken that metaphorical judgment of all of the world and it had touched his lips, he says, it's finished. Now it can end. Now all of this imagery of the last 600, 700 years that we've been waiting for, this cup that we can't escape, he's taking it and he's downing it for us. A lot of times when I preach, I don't know how to tie things up. So I have this great slide here that says conclusion. I put it in the middle to remind me that I should conclude these things. A couple things that I get out of this interweaving, like an infinity scarf, hopefully, of this set of text is we all got to drink something. The way that the Bible displays that is it's either we take that foaming, alcoholic wine with spices, kind of like sangria, that demonstrates and has something to do with God's judgment, and we drink it to its dregs, and we stagger and stumble and vomit and suffer the consequences. Or we take the second cup, the one that symbolizes the blood of the new covenant, the one that symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one that every time we take of it, we remember him on the cross 
taking that last touch of wine vinegar that seems to symbolize the fact that he's taking on what is due us. We could conclude it like this by saying, which cup do you want to drink from? Or which cup are you drinking from? We could lay that choice out there where, again, you're confronted with this dilemma of, do I go this way or do I go that way? I think that's a valid question, but I also want to take one step back and just let us see a glorious Savior who in the midst of the worst exile of all time, one in which he was exiled from his father that he had been connected with from all eternity, takes on what was due us, and in so doing offers us life and hope and redemption and reconciliation. In Isaiah, we see glimpses of that because Israel and Jerusalem had gone through this. But now it's their tormentor's turn. It's like that's the hope. But here in the New Testament, we see a better hope, a climactic hope, a hope that's found in Christ who has taken on every impurity and every shortcoming that we have earned and paid for it in full. I hope that tonight, as perhaps this call is one that you've heard a million times, I hope that something sits differently with you in the stillness of this room where you begin to see Christ as life, as hope, as redemption, as restoration, and that we begin to mute some of the doubts that we have rattling around in our minds, the same ones that Israel had so long ago, where we keep hearing instead, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. For us, that comfort is found in Christ. And it is my prayer tonight and always that you find that comfort in the death and the beautiful, powerful, glorious resurrection of his son Jesus.